Coming up on the Mindful Midlife Crisis. The way I've tweeted it and talked about it before, nothing bad comes from being likable and nothing good comes from losing control of your emotions. If you put those two ideas together, you kind of get the crux of my philosophy, which is don't let your emotions lead you. I don't say don't feel. I say don't let your emotions be the reason you do a thing. At the very least, don't do something without objective calculation. And for most people, that means you need to step away from your emotions. Very few people were able to feel and be fully present emotionally and objectively evaluate a situation. Welcome to the Mindful Midlife Crisis, a podcast for people navigating the complexities and possibilities of life's second half. I'm your host, Billy Lahr, an educator, personal trainer, meditation teacher, and overthinker who talks to experts who specialize in social and emotional learning, mindfulness, physical and emotional wellness, cultural awareness, finances, communication, relationships, dating, and parenting, all in an effort to help us better reflect, learn, and grow so we can live a more purpose-filled life. Take a deep breath, embrace the present, and journey with me through the Mindful Midlife Crisis. Welcome to the Mindful Midlife Crisis. I'm your host, Billy Lahr. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are. The purpose of this show is to provide a platform that gives people the space and permission to share their expertise and life experiences in order to help others navigate the complexities and possibilities of life's second half. And remember, this free and useful information is helpful to people of all ages. Wisdom isn't about one's age. Wisdom comes from our ability to reflect, learn, and grow from our own life experiences while also learning from the experiences of others, regardless of what stage of life we are in, because you never know what life is going to throw at you. So there just might be a conversation or two from past episodes that help you feel a little bit better prepared for the challenges you might face in life or that you're facing right now, whether those challenges be your emotional, mental, and or physical health your relationships with others, including your partner and children, your career, your finances, whatever curveballs life is throwing your way right now. Just know that you are not alone in your experience and the conversations I'm having here are with people who have been there before and have done the research to help you navigate these situations with more awareness, openness, curiosity, and compassion so you can live a more purpose-filled life. And trust me, I take all of these conversations I'm having to heart as well, and I try to apply what I'm learning from these conversations, which is why I do solo episodes the first Wednesday of every month, because I think of this show as a running dialogue between me and you, the listener, because my hope is that you can see and hear the growth I'm making in my own life so that it inspires you to seek out the connections between our shared experiences so that you too can take intentional and inspired action. So if you're looking for some ways to help you better navigate whatever you've got going on in your life from someone who's been through it before, check out some of the other episodes at www.mindfulmidlifecrisis.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A few quick notes about this week's episode. First of all, I apologize for the sound quality of my mic during my conversation with today's guests. I recorded this episode way back in September, and I had just set up a new mic and audio interface But because my good friend and former co-host, Brian on the bass, who is also the sound engineer for the show, wasn't there to assist me, I set it up incorrectly, and I sound like I'm speaking through a mosquito's ass. Which brings me to my next note. (laughs) My guest today 
holds some very strong opinions, and it was fun to challenge him on some of those opinions during this conversation, but his language is a bit more colorful and animated than most of my past guests. So if you have kids in the car while listening to this, tell them to earmuff it if you don't want them to learn a bunch of new naughty words. (laughs) You've probably said them in traffic anyway, but just so you know. Lastly, as I mentioned before, I recorded this episode in September, but it's being released in January. So just as an update, I wanted to let you know that my guest today is now a proud papa. So be sure to give him a follow on Instagram and Twitter and tell him congratulations. All of that information is in the show notes. So with that, let's meet today's guest. Our guest today is Ed Lattimore. Ed is a best-selling author, former professional heavyweight boxer, and competitive chess player. His writing focuses on self-improvement and a practical approach to Stoic philosophy. He is here today to discuss why he thinks humanity is doomed and everything is fucked. And I'm going to try and convince him that maybe things aren't so bad. So welcome to the show, Ed Lattimore. Hey, thank you for having me, man. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I, I had to remember where that was from. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I made a thread about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your social media posts are pretty entertaining because you kind of go with the tough love approach. And, you know, there are some things in there that I'm like, boy, that's real tough. I, I kind of want to talk to Ed about that and see <laughs> where that's coming from because your life experiences are pretty wild and have shaped this stoic philosophy that you have. So I just want to talk about that and get into some of these other things too. But what we always do to start off the show is to talk about the 10 roles that our guests play in their life. And you have your author, chess player, boxing coach, expecting father, partner, SEO writer, teacher, student, and creator. So just really quickly, congratulations on being an expecting father. Oh, thank you. I'm excited. I mean, I hope the kid's excited. I mean, I know he's not. He doesn't even know what's going on. <laughs> what are you having? Do you know? A boy. A boy. Congratulations. Yeah. You got the name all picked out? Uh, we got some ideas. We're pretty set on, on what we have now. We thought we were pretty set, uh, you know, two months ago. So it just keeps jumping around. I'm not a dad. I don't ever expect to be a dad or anything like that. But whenever I talk to people who are parents, they're like, we thought we were prepared, but we were in no way, shape, or form prepared. Do you feel prepared, or are you just kind of rolling with the punches, so to speak? I think because I'm rolling with the punches, I feel prepared. Now, like in terms of the things you can measure, you won't have to worry about money. We've been together now for 10 years, very stable, and we like one another. It's very loving and home. He'll be coming into you. And, and more importantly, I've done a lot of things that I wanted to do. So I'm not going to be, I'm not going to feel resentful for anything I can't do with the kid. And furthermore, and this is the most interesting part to me, there's this whole community of people with kids, right? And it makes sense. And so it's just a different world to compare to, I think what I'm looking forward to is like when I discovered the world of people who don't drink, I was like, wow, there's a whole world of people who don't drink. And there's a whole community and everything like that. And I, and I think it's like that for any experience. You get to find other people who are like you and doing things like you. It should be fun. Well, and that's one thing that you and I share in common. I didn't drink during the school year. Back when I was in education, I would take nine months off and do like an alcohol sabbatical during that time. And then during the summer months, I would have one or two here from time to time. But I had to teach myself how to be a social drinker because 
I didn't have the addiction like you've talked about in your TED Talks, and we'll we'll link that in the show notes too. I didn't have that physical addiction, but I didn't know how to turn it off when I started. But then if I wasn't drinking, I was like, well, I can handle it. But it sounded like you had that physical addiction to it. And that TED Talk does a great job of talking about addiction. Yeah, you know, people people have their ideas of like what addiction is. And I certainly have mine. And they've been modified over the years. And ultimately, what it comes down to is this behavior getting in the way or detracting from my quality of life. And can I stop it? If so, once you recognize that it's a problem, then you jump to the next step, which is how big of a problem is it? Can you stop doing it? And if you can't stop doing it at will <laughs> and, you know, not feeling comfortable and go do other things, you probably have an issue, right? And that, that, that's how I feel. That's how I looked at my situation in my life. I looked at the damage that it was causing me. I looked at the opportunities it was causing me to miss. And I said that I don't know what difference it'll make. At least, you know, then I, I had no idea. And I don't know what my life would be if I kept drinking. But what I can say for sure is one to the first question is, or rather the answer to both questions, I really like how my life is now and I like the person I am and I respect the person I am. And I know that wouldn't be possible if I continued to have alcohol as a focus in my life. And because of the type of person I am, you know, when I quit, I'm just so grateful for, for everything it's brought me. I'm grateful every day. I wake up every day happy that I don't have to worry about a hangover. My girl's not got to worry about getting a call or finding some girl that I was flirting with at the bar, something like that. You know, I've eliminated entire stress points, timelines from my life because I don't drink. And to me, that's important. And it's one thing to say that just as a predictive kind of deal. But I know I've been down the other path, you know, I know where it goes because I've seen it. I'm not interested in being there. This has just been really a fantastic point. And one of the things that's interesting to point out, you had me list the 10 roles. Here's how ingrained it's become. I didn't even think to list anything related to sobriety. And it, like, that's a big deal. Like I had my sobriety date tattooed on my arm and I did not think to list anything. Because now I'm just a person who doesn't drink. And I don't even see it as an identity piece. Yeah, I was actually thinking about asking you that, you know, hey, do we want to include something about sobriety or being an alcoholic? Because you, in your TED Talk, you said, my name is Ed and I'm alcoholic. So I was wondering, should we include that into the 10 roles? But like you said, it's not even something that you really identify with anymore. You used to be a boxer and now... And you were a pretty successful boxer, but now you've transitioned out of that. And I think some people would say that you cut your career short. And I know you have an explanation for that. But now you're, you make your money publishing articles and doing SEO writing. And you're just a constant creator. And those are two things that you're looking forward to in the second half, as well as being a creator and going from a self-published author to a published author. So can you talk about where that creative energy comes from, why you want to go from self-publishing to published author with a company? You have to know what drives you, right? And it's important to know all the things that drive you, at least as many of the things that do, because then you can make honest real decisions that are going to help you to be fulfilled and help you be happy because I'm the only one that's got to live this life, right? 
and there are people who have to live with the consequences or benefits of the things I do or don't do, but I'm the only one that, that feels what I feel, okay? So, so with that aside, you know, self-publishing is great, especially for what it's done for me. It, it really, and here's what's the crazy thing before I even go into this, that first book I published, I don't even think it's that good. I think I made a lot of mistakes in, in my writing, but it was an authentic, powerful message. And that carried it. That exposed me to a lot of people and really grew my brand and who I am. I know, though, with everything I know now, with a publisher behind me, I just would be able to legitimately achieve big numbers and big recognition, and it would really transform what I'm doing and take it to a higher level. Now, I I always write. That's not going to change. I mean, the the site, no, no one pays me to write on that site. I mean, I figure out ways to get paid, but no one pays me to write on that site. No one pays me for the newsletter. No one pays me for the writing I put out on Twitter, the little tweets. To me, it's just a mode of expansion and expression. When I write something down, it helps me think clearly about it. Right now, I'm doing a lot of writing about insulin resistance and cholesterol and linoleic acid and things like that, because that's what I'm I'm interested in right now. So it's important for me to to write it because writing organizes all of my thoughts and helps me think clearly. It helps me formulate and know my argument well. If I don't do that, then I don't know anything, you know? And, and, you know, who knows where my interest will be? I'm also starting a series of articles about my ideas and my journey through chess. For me, it's how to learn, how to express myself. I think I have a pretty interesting and unique perspective. At the very least, I know that I'm better than most people at taking complicated ideas and making them simple for others to understand. And so that's the appeal of writing to me. That And then the appeal of being published is that I get real muscle and help behind uh, the next book. And yeah, you give up a little control, but it gets you into rooms that you don't even know exist is the best way I can describe it from what I've talked to people about. It's just an amazing thing, to, especially if you can get it to the bestseller status. And I have all the tools to do that. Well, it's that unique perspective that I want to dive into here today. So what we're going to do is this. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Ed about what this stoic philosophy means to him. Thank you for listening to The Mindful Midlife Crisis. Thank you for listening to The Mindful Midlife Crisis. If you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. Also, giving the show a quick five-star review with a few kind words helps others find and benefit from this podcast just like you are. Finally, please spread the wealth of free knowledge and advice in this episode by sharing it with the people in your life who may find this information and my mission to help others live a more purpose-filled life valuable. My hope is that these conversations resonate with others and inspire people to live their best lives. Thanks again. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Mindful Midlife Crisis. We are here with Ed Lattimore, just kind of breaking down this idea of Stoic philosophy. So I'm not super familiar with this, Ed. So you describe it as Stoic street smarts. What do you mean by that? The idea, right, comes down to this The way I've tweeted it and talked about it before, nothing bad comes from being likable and nothing good comes from losing control of your emotions. If you put those two ideas together, you kind of get the crux of my philosophy, which is don't let your emotions lead you. I don't say don't feel. 
I say don't let your emotions be the reason you do a thing. At the very least, don't do something without objective calculation. And for most people, that means you need to step away from your emotions. Very few people were able to feel and be fully present emotionally and objectively evaluate a situation. And the ability to do that kind of makes you appear cold. I know I've gotten that before. So it sort of balanced that out. I had to really work on on being likable, which means reading and understanding people. And the same skills that allow you to read and understand a person, they also contribute to the ability uh, or rather to a street smart level of ability. And, you know, all street smarts is, is reading people. We talk about it as if it is exclusive to people who are like hustlers on the street. But the reality is anybody can be street smart. All that matters is, you know, your willingness to to learn things you can't learn in books. It's from experience, from interaction, from mistakes, from reading things, from making decisions based on incomplete information or probabilistic functions rather than certainty and determinism. When you're able to do those things, then you're street smart. And the better you do it, the better you'll get. You know, occasionally you'll lose, just like a poker. Occasionally you'll get dealt, you know, pocket aces and still get beat because some, some idiot sat in the hand with, with two seven and the flop came down seven seven two it happens right but that's not what usually happens and over a long enough time you'll win more hands than you will lose well it's those street smarts that made your story really resonate with me in fact the first time i had heard of ed Lattimore was i was listening to the jordan harbinger show and you were a guest on there and your story was so fascinating and so interesting I remember exactly where I was in the world because I was in Sagres, Portugal, listening to that interview overlooking the end of the world where you can see the sunset at the furthest point in Europe. And I was just blown away by your story. And I started following you on Instagram because I really like your story and you go into depth in those episodes. But then as I started to follow you on Instagram, I was like, oh, damn, Ed's kind of got a chip on his shoulder right here. He is dishing out the tough love right here (laughs) into these posts. I imagine you and I see the world very differently because our life experiences are vastly different. How have you come to this conclusion that humanity is doomed and everything is fucked? Well, I'm an eternal optimist, but more than that, I'm a realist. (laughs) And the more I learn about how people interact with one another, and kind of what incentivizes and disincentivizes certain behaviors. And my experiences online with, with our, over 190,000 followers where I get to interact with a lot of people and meet a lot of people. I think our evolution as a species is now going to be driven internally. We're the apex predator on this planet. Nothing will force us to get better. And sort of an asteroid or meteor or something that's contagious, but like with the death rate of Ebola, Nothing will kill us. And people go, what about nuclear winter? I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like, there's not enough nuclear material. It would be devastating, but we'd be okay. Well, well, enough of us to continue. But what's really going to wipe us out are those two things, if anything ever wipes us out. I started to thinking, and I look at the things that cause problems. You know, we, we don't know how to forgive. We don't know how to listen. To move to the next level, everyone would have to collectively be disciplined and non-reactive. And that'll never happen. Because what you're asking an organism to do is exist in a state that is not the most energy efficient one. And I always say, you know, every organism assumes the most energy efficient configuration by default. That's the most general way of seeing. We take the easy way to try and get the most effort, the most the most return possible. 
to overcome a lot of our issues, what you're asking people to do is to intentionally restrict themselves, intentionally be disciplined, intentionally be patient and do that regardless. And it'll never happen. And this is why, for example, you know, what else might kill us? Oh, well, we might realistically over harvest our food supply because greed, you know, it, not because we need it, mind you, but because it's easier to do it one way. And that way has costs that are cheaper than the value received. So you do it right instead of going out there and, and a bit of self-sustainment. That, that's one way we can do things. Capitalism has ruined everything. I'm not against capitalism. My view on capitalism is that it's a lot like salt. This is the analogy I always give. So, so salt is composed of sodium and chloride, two substances on their own, which are poisonous and corrosive, but combined, create an essential element for life. But if you have too much of it, you get hypertension, heart disease, high blood pressure, dehydration. You know, you get a lot of problems having too much. So food doesn't taste quite right. Doesn't taste good. Compared to capitalism, I go, capitalism took two things by themselves, incredibly destructive. Self-interest and greed combined them and created something that has changed the lives, just changed this planet, really. Pulled us up from the dark age to where we are now. But at least in this country, in the United States, capitalism is sprinkled on everything, and that's ruined it. Everything from healthcare to education. Even our methods of entertainment were driven to the lowest common denominator to generate the most money, but spending the least amount with the least investment instead of a focus on creating a real quality product. You see, our food supply is based is poison. You look at the rates of metabolic syndrome and the research coming out. That's what I'm saying. Like right now, my big thing is, you know, cholesterol and insulin resistance and all that. And you see our pursuit of cheap and plentiful food and profit has led to us in many cases, outright deceiving the public. And by us, I mean the, the American Heart Association, outright deceiving the public and having them consume something that actually makes them sir. <laughs> it's just crazy. And humanity's always been driven forward by a few different individuals, whether it be spiritually, intellectually, physically, courage-wise, they've always been driven by a few. The problem now that we didn't have in the past is that the others... All have a voice, all have reach, and have access to life-ending weaponry. It wasn't always like this. Now the idiots have a voice, and the idiots have the power, uh, and then the cowards have the power of the, the courageous man. And it, it's a weird universe, man. But that's why. Put it that way. <laughs> well, and you talked about evolution. You talked about the cowards. You talked about the have-nots of capitalism. And you also talk about, like, you cannot trust weak people because— when you're weak, deception and disloyalty are their only means of survival. So then what responsibility do we have when it comes to helping the weak get stronger, or do we just let Darwinism handle no, it? No, I, I don't think you let Darwinism handle it. If I had to rank the best way to handle these things, I think letting Darwinism handle it probably is in the middle. Right. I think the worst thing we can do is to enable or encourage pretty much what we've done by making it um, profitable to be a victim or at the very least not disincentivizing it and getting people to, to relax and look at the facts and make real decisions or the corruption that exists that, that prevents like with this example, just to, to stop, step a little bit. 
I'm never the guy, even though I'm a black man, I'm never the guy that just looks at the case and goes, the police were wrong and the races. I look at it. I look at each case. And what I've realized looking deeply is that the, the problem or one of the biggest problems, there's two. When there's a mistake, the police don't step in and fix it. You know, there was no reason for, for certain people to get killed. And the police could have handled that and it could have restored faith. And then the other end of it is, you know, we don't have the most stringent requirements in this country to become a police officer. And the training is four months. I mean, compare that to being a Marine. The training to be a Marine, the basic training is four months before you go to your advanced training, before you're like fully in. It's a different world, you know, compared to other places. So we were like, once again, though, capitalism, there it is. It's infected a negative display of it. Instead of trying to get a, get the well-trained best police officers, we don't do that because that costs money. And are there someone taking cuts somewhere? My point there, yes, is that uh, when you have these situations that are explosive in society, by enabling and polarizing two things that are profitable for certain people, you, you end up with, with an adverse effect. I think the best way to handle and the best things to do is a very tough love, objective the view of reality. I'm not like a bigot. I don't like blocking anybody out. Nothing like that. I love everyone. But at the same time, I'm not an idiot. Someone had a post and it really stuck with me. And it was like, they convinced you that a man could be a woman. Convincing you that we're not in a recession should be no problem. should be a layup. And I was like, that's brilliant. Because now you're vilified if you even remotely question that idea logically. Not from a position of like, emotion or hate, but but what was the big deal with the Supreme Court nominee? They asked, well, how would you define a woman or whatever? That, that's crazy that an adult could not do that. And that's an example of what I mean of um, we don't adhere to an objective reality anymore. And I think doing that would remind us that certain facts <laughs> or you, you can't escape them just in the rest of your life in general. And if you try to do so, you, reality, you don't care, man. It would be like the argument you see floating around every now and then about how the WNBA, it's not fair because they're not paid like the NBA. And, and I sit here and I go, how does one even get to the point where they feel comfortable making that analogy? They get to that point because someone did not explain basic tenets of reality to them. <laughs> right? So they're operating in a, in a world where this is like real possible to them. That like there's some there's an injustice going on. And that's crazy to me. With your experiences in your life and, and what you grew up with, I imagine that there are people out there who they're in the pull yourself up by the bootstraps crowd, which I talked to Dr. Shree Walker about that too. There's kind of two sides of that where it's like you have people that want to prop someone up who overcame the odds and as some sort of model and say, you know, see, look what Ed Lattimore overcame. How come you can't come up with that? Does that discredit the struggle marginalized populations face? Or is that something that people like to say in order to make themselves sound woke? Oh, man, you want to hear something crazy? I have struggled with this internally. And I think I have an answer, but I struggle with this, right? So I recognize now at 37 years old, and I bring up my age because that, that's old enough to have watched people who were born when you were like, not an adult, but like with real memories. Well, even as an adult, right? They're adults now. At the very least, they're making adult decisions. And to see kind of how the cycle plays out and to look at 
the rest of my family and my peers and see how the trajectory plays out when you look at it. And what I've realized is I'm lucky. There are a lot of things that are different about me from the rest of my peers, and none of them I had any control over. And there were instances in my life, whether it be by luck, a lot of it by luck again, that you know I didn't end up in prison or something because the coin just landed on a different side. And before, I always say, you can't outrun the law of large numbers. And for anyone who doesn't know, the law of large numbers is the law of probability that states when enough trials, the measured outcome gets closer to the predicted outcome. It's like if I flip a coin 10 times and it comes up seven heads, three tails, you wouldn't say that coin is fixed. And I mean, unless you knew it was, you would just go, okay, you only flipped it 10 times, flip it 100, and maybe 100 times it comes up 55, 45. That's a lot closer to one half. And guess what? If we flipped it a thousand, it would get closer and closer and so on, right? And I always say that to point out that if you keep doing dumb shit, eventually you're going to get caught. <laughs> There's a great line in the uh, in Narcos and where he goes, the bad guys have to keep getting lucky. We only have to get lucky once. And I was like, that's it, man. I just, woo, that, that stuck with me. So I say all that to say, I am a lucky individual. I had to make certain decisions and choices to put me in a position to have better luck, but but even some of those were luck. And the people who are still there, though, there comes a point where you got to make decisions too. Because like when you're 14 or 15, a judge looks at you and goes, you're not an adult, and we're not going to try you as an adult. Closer you get to 18, the less likely that it is to, be, to happen. I just looked up a case. It was my cousin's case. I had a fuzzy memory about it, but I figured it was a profile enough to be in a newspaper. So I looked it up and, and it was He's 17 years old, decided he was going to, this is 1990, decided he was going to take a taxi, knowing he didn't have the money. When they got to the destination, the taxi driver was like, okay, where's the money? He said, no, they got into an argument. He shot him, shot him in the chest, killed him. He's doing a life sentence right now. But he was 17, and they tried to get him tried as uh, that was part of the docket. They tried to get him tried as a juvenile, but they were like, fuck no. <laughs> not only is he not that juvenile, he just shot, he shot a man in his chest for, for asking for his money. It's crazy. And here's the crazy part about that, that, that statement. I got a cousin right now, his brother, in fact, doing the second time in jail, doing 12 to 24 years, or probably do closer to 20. He wasn't even born when the brother did this, but he was raised in the same environment by the same mother with the same lack of resources. And I see this and I look at the rest of my family, I look at the rest of the people I know and I go, look, for every me, I, I'm a, you know what survivor's bias is? Where you look at the people who succeeded and you go, oh, that's possible. And instead of looking at the thousands who failed and then using me as an example, what can be, can happen. And when you have that type of humility, because that takes a lot of humility to be like, yeah, you know, I worked hard and I'm smart, whatever, right? But at the end of the day, man, there's a lot of shit that didn't swallow me up before I got my mind right. Especially like, you know, why do you think I drank so much? It's not, it's not what a normal person does. But I had to get that under control. Otherwise, it was a matter, it's only a matter of time. I don't know if, there's, if that's an answer or not. I guess to sum it up, I know you have to make your own decisions in life, but I just cannot in good conscience look past the, if all you know is bullshit growing up, <laughs> you're not going to have, you know, and that's one of the things that I got lucky with. 
they, they discovered I had an IQ of like 135 when I was eight. So they put me in a gifted program. It was only one day a week. One day a week, I went to a different school in a different neighborhood, different people, mostly white folks. And I saw something different. And I was like, wow, that was enough to where when I turned 14, or, when, or rather when I graduated from middle school, the way our city works is you there's a school you feed into for your neighborhood, but you can apply to go to another one. I told my mom, I said, we're going to go down. We're going to apply to go to Shenley, which was across town. I had to catch two buses, be out the door by 530 in the morning when I was a kid. That makes a difference because the other high school, man, they still kill them motherfuckers like at that high school occasionally. My sister went there. My sister's a mess. Right. That's how things work. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because then it ties into the question to nature versus nurture, right? And Uh, I was just listening to somebody today on a podcast where they said that psychopaths are actually born. You can actually see their brain is different in a brain scan than a normal person's. But she was talking about this Venn diagram where you have con artists and psychopaths and there's this overlap of con artists being psychopaths and some psychopaths being con artists, but they can be mutually exclusive because depending on the way you were nurtured, you might have the brain of a psychopath, but you might not ever apply it to the con. Oh man, I'll take you one step further on that. There are people, if you somehow, you ever see the show Dexter? I never got into that one. That was one show I never got into. So so the whole premise of Dexter is that Dexter is a psychopathic murderer, right? But he was raised to take out those urges in a controlled way. And what he decides to do is, I guess he's technically a police officer, but he's a blood splatter expert, is he kills bad guys. A really interesting premise. But you can see the same thing in like... um, Certain people who end up selected out for the highest levels of the military. And by, by self-select, I mean, they, first they enlist, and then they go into special services or whatever, right? In this book, On Killing, he talks about this. That most of us don't really, even in war, we're not killers. We're just not built for it. But a few of us, ah, man, we don't really feel anything. Not only do we not feel anything, you know, there's like battle fatigue. Like, you, you got to rotate in off the line. You can keep them motherfuckers out there forever, and they'll come right back like nothing happened. We exist, you know. It's or not we exist. I don't know. I'm, I'm putting myself in that category. Well, well I was <laughs> just going to say because I was going to ask you if you would put yourself in that category because you served in the military, and I don't know if you need to have like a killer instinct as a boxer. I imagine you have to be okay with hurting people. Yeah, you so, got to be okay with hurting people. You, you got to be okay with hurting people. Okay, to be a big old fighter. And, and, you know, my military service wasn't all that. I was a National Guardsman, didn't deploy, mainly for school. But, I mean, sure, they could have sent me somewhere. I certainly signed that check uh, or signed my name on the line, but it never came to that. But as far as fighting goes, to be a good fighter, you have to enjoy hurting people. Otherwise, to you, it's going to be a sport. And you're never going to be able to go to the place where the other guy goes. You know what it would be like? It would be like two guys get together in a battle. And one guy says, I'm never going to use this weapon. It's against my moral code. And the other guy's like, fuck this. I'm going to use whatever I can. The odds are always, oh, you can root for the good guy and the honorable guy you want. The reality uh, <laughs> is that the other guy is just going to have that advantage. And, you know, it's little things you learn to do in a fight. You got to be okay with knowing that you're going to probably 
there's a good chance you're going to alter somebody's life. Taking food out their mouth, if you win and they don't get the next fight. And then you have to, not just with, with that, because that trait by itself, there's a lot of assholes in the world. You also got to be comfortable and able to manage pain and have this calm in as you approach a dangerous situation. I'll tell you a story, man. When I was in Los Angeles as part of my amateur sponsorship, they evaluated us with sports psychologists. And the sports psychologist told me something about myself that I thought was really interesting, just looking at my assessment and everything. He goes, you know, uh, I've, been, he goes, I've been doing this for a long time. I've never seen, or not never, he said very, very rarely has he seen uh, someone get calmer the closer they get to the event. And I said, that's really interesting because to me, if you talk to my coach, he'll, he'd say, you know, one of my issues was getting fired up. And to interpret that as I didn't want to hurt the guy is completely incorrect. Even if it was sparring, I'd be like, fuck out of here. You know, I, I have no problem with that. My issue was that well, I, I didn't feel anything. That makes sense. Uh, I, I didn't go in there angry, vengeful, nothing to prove. I, I, I didn't have those feelings. To me, it was, it was a systematic thing. Here's a person. Let's stop this human. Whatever damage I got to take, as long as I can keep going for it, whatever, right? Because you get used to being hurt. I mean, I think that's what's really interesting about being a fighter. You get used to being hurt. That's just part of the game. Thank you for listening to the Mindful Midlife Crisis. New episodes come out every Wednesday to help you get over the midweek hump. If you'd like to contact me, or if you have suggestions about what you'd like to hear on the show, visit www.mindfulmidlifecrisis.com and click Contact Us. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter to get free weekly meditations as well as free resources from our Reflect, Learn, Grow program. You can also click on the show notes for links to the articles and resources we reference throughout the show. If you want to check out my worldly adventures, follow me on Instagram at mindful underscore midlife underscore crisis. My hope is that my trials, tribulations, and successes will inspire you to take intentional action to live a more purpose-filled life. And while you're at it, remember to show yourself some love every now and then, too. Thanks again. And now, back to the show. So you've had a lot of experience just from being a writer, being a boxer, playing chess, and serving our country. You're very worldly experienced. You also have a degree in physics, which is interesting to me that you went and got that physics degree because you've presented yourself as kind of anti-college unless you're going to go get a science or a math degree. And, you know, you got your science degree, but now here I am. That's a math you know, degree too, man. That's a, that's a hard yeah, degree. A, <laughs> but, but here I am, you know, I worked 21 years in education. Why are you shitting on my profession, Ed? What are you doing to us educators out there and telling them college is overrated unless you're getting a math or science degree? What's your beef with college? My beef with college is that it's been affected by capitalism. Pure and simple. I have nothing against education. If that's not obvious, I don't know what else to say. I have nothing <laughs> against education. What I'm against, for example is forcing a student to take two years of a prerequisite completely unrelated to what they're studying, and that would instantly doubles the cost of tuition. What I'm against is a policy that forces a, a first-year, sometimes second-year student to live on campus and pay room and board, which is always more expensive than simply staying off campus, right? 
what I'm against are exorbitant fees for these textbooks. You know, and, and thank goodness the, the digital games switched that all up. Now they don't even they don't even bother trying to keep. Oh, well, or rather, what they've done, you know, build a better mousetrap. But but this, but kids are smart. We figure out ways around it. If it was just about learning, what text you get almost wouldn't matter. But instead, they're like, you got to go and, and spend two hundred dollars on this book because I'm assigning the questions out of this book. And I'm like, you dirty motherfucker! Like you could get the questions anywhere. Right, but you chose that book to cost two hundred dollars. It's insane. And here's what this next part: they figured this shit out. But this is not an accident. They said, "Okay, uh, this was back in the seventies." They were like, yeah, and by they, I mean good colleges, but who did not have the name brand of a Harvard or a Cornell or a Brown. Right? They said, "How do we compete with these guys?" Oh, the name brand is there. What if we just raise our prices? Because I know a few of the Ivy Leagues, if you get accepted, it's not even, at least it's how it was. I don't know how it is now. You get accepted, you don't even have to pay the tuition unless your family's like, Rich, you just go, right? But these other schools were like, that's how we'll compete. We'll raise the price. And it fucking worked because people are foolish, right? It worked. Well, so now what you have is a race to the top instead of a race to the bottom, but it's the wrong metric. It's let's make the school cost as much. Okay, and, and then when you combine that with the incredibly predatory practice of student loans, and what I'm against for student loans, what you're effectively asking to do, and I got a unique perspective on this because I went and got stuck in that machine when I was 18 and I didn't know what the fuck it was. But then when I went back at 30, let me tell you something. I don't know if they did this before, but I had to do it. It took about two hours. You sit through a whole thing where you're like, here's how this works. What are you studying? Based on what the projected salary of what you're studying is, this is how long it's going to take you to pay this money back. Like, it was a, it was a real education, you know? But I know the average 18-year-old man ain't thinking about that. Some of them are still in high school. Like, they're not even legally allowed to drink. We know their, their brains, particularly the part of their brain that deals with planning and considering the long term, is not developed till 25. That's why other institutions won't loan them money, won't let them rent a car, won't let them rent uh, a house without a co-signer, but we're going to give them all this money for this thing that's been pumped up to cost more so you can get away with charging them more and extract them in this, this guaranteed money from the government, but putting the individual on the hook. That's what I'm against, okay? And look, people in Europe look at my shit, they're like, man, you Americans are crazy, right? Because <laughs> they ain't like that in Europe. At least not, well, I mean, I guess the UK is a little different, but even in the UK, it's not like that because they it's not as expensive. That's my problem. You fix that, we'll be all good. At least at the higher level. Now, now, as far as high schools go, it's a different conversation with other problems, but not that problem as far as income goes. So how come math and science get a pass? And I'm curious why English doesn't get a pass because you're a writer and you had to learn those skills somehow. Maybe you didn't learn those through an English course. Maybe you just learned it through trial and error. But why does math and science get a pass? Also, I taught English for 15 years. Go. <laughs> okay. So, so, so first of all, one of the things I want to say is, and you can see it, or you could if I left it up there, there is a clear difference in the quality of my writing pre my degree in physics and post. Because you know who scores the highest in the GRE, physics majors on average, because you have to be 
better than average at math at the worst. But that's so you can describe things with equations, but you also have to be a hell of a communicator orator, and your words and choice has to be incredibly precise because some of the things we say colloquially, those there's a big difference in physics. For example, I can't just say the car sped up. What do you mean it's sped up? Oh, you mean it's just going fast. I can't just say turn the volume up. You don't turn volume up. You increase it. (laughs) Little things like that. To be able to describe formulas and words and words and formulas and do it in a way where it's understandable, right? There's a skill. But as far as why math and science get it passed, and not all science, I want to be clear. In the STEM, I am very, very anti the S. Uh, the T and the E get a pass. The M, it depends, right? Now, why is that? Because if you're going to make something about the money, which is what they've turned into college, so your passions, fuck your passions, they don't matter anymore. And because to finance your passion is going to cost you a minimum of, on the low end, $25,000 a year. If you want the four-year degree to say, I love my passion, right? Okay, so when you make it about the money, but well, now you got to get a return on your investment. And I know that if I have a degree in computer engineering, I know there's no one that's going to pay me less than 110 starting. Starting. It's going to make it a lot easier to deal with my student loan payments. If I got this English degree, though, I'm going to have to have a bunch of other skills to supplement that. Even short of becoming a teacher. And I have a huge problem. I don't care what the subject is. If your path is studying this subject, Go to grad school, teach this subject. What the? That's a pyramid scheme by definition. Like, you understand what a pyramid scheme is, right? (laughs) Yes, but I want to hear this explanation (laughs) right here. (laughs) Okay, so a pyramid scheme is where there is no actual good exchanged, right? That's the big difference between a subscription service model versus a pyramid scheme, right? Is that a subscription service model, I send you something. And that is the way I make money. Now, you ain't got to like my price, but I send you shit if you agree and you send me money. And we have conducted an economic transaction. What a pyramid scheme, I recruit a bunch of people who recruit a bunch of people who recruit a bunch of people. And as part of recruitment, we pay. But what do I get as a recruit? I get to recruit other people. There's been no exchange of money. It just flows to the top. That's why I compare the people who get a degree just to teach the subject like a pyramid scheme because there's there's been no contribution to society. And that's ultimately where the value of what you study lays. Well, how can you use it to create or facilitate something in humanity? That's what the investment is supposed to be. If you can't do that, the only way you're going to get paid is to go teach it again. You just kept the loop closed. You have brought in more subscribers. That's what you've done. Or rather, you haven't brought them in, but you're distributing each time. And then each of those, they're going to go off and become teachers and go off and become teachers. But what have they actually done and use that degree to accomplish? That is where I stand with that. And I don't care if it's English. I wouldn't care. Look, I, here's how harsh I am. It's really hard to because of the way, you know, what you got to do to progress through engineering, like get an internship, uh, which usually put you in a position to create and contribute value. But if somehow you only went through your degree and you only only used it to to go teach later, you bought into the uh, pyramid scheme model of education. You didn't use your degree to, to contribute. Like from an economic perspective, you would have been better off doing, shit, you'd been better off driving Uber, man, because you still got to pay that money back. At least when you start driving Uber, you start 
right there, which is what happens in a pyramid scheme, mind you. You end up owing money <laughs> to your upline, or not to your upline, I guess technically to your, your downline. I don't even remember the term, but the person that brought you in, you got to keep paying them. That's the only way you keep getting the money from everyone below you. Otherwise, you out. It's the same way with the degree system this way. I lucked out because I went to college in the 90s and college was still affordable. So I, <laughs> I got out just in time and I made sure that whatever my loan payments were, I doubled those. So that way I got those loan payments taken care of. That was the one now, now, cool really question. good financial how, advice. How did you pay your loans back? For the salary that I made teaching. Right. Okay. But... It's teaching, but it's okay. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, was a good, I was a good saver. I was a good saver. So you know, by talking about like how much did I, how much was I making a year? Like, no, I wasn't making as much as somebody coming out with a computer. Listen, I started into computer programming. That was my original major, and two weeks of Fortran programming and calculus taught me that I don't know shit about shit. And so I was like, all right, I need to figure out what it is that I'm good at. And what I'm good at is I loved reading, I loved writing, and I loved talking about reading, and I loved talking about writing. And I had always been a coach all through my high school days, coaching t-ball, coaching Little League, that kind of stuff. So I lucked out and figured out what I was good at. Now, like you said, but you're not paying passions. for it. Yeah, you're right. But you're not paying. You're not paying out the ass for it. No. That's the problem today. I, I lucked out. <laughs> I lucked out with that time going to college in the '90s. Was that it was still affordable. But now I see what you're saying there. Now I think when you talk about contributions, one of the contributions that I think about as an educator and you know as a teacher, as a dean, was I was caring for my students. But I know I have seen you post things that say, listen, nobody cares about you. Come on. I just want to give you a hug, Ed. You know, this, this, uh, so don't you think that when you, we tell people nobody cares about you, it perpetuates a me over we mentality that also reinforces selfishness and narcissism? I can see that being a conclusion one reaches. I think if I was like to rank the, the logical steps and give them a grade to take with it, I would probably give that conclusion a C plus. <laughs> because here's the thing. Well, the statement isn't you don't care about other people. It's other people don't care about you. And this is a really significant, it might not seem like a big deal, but I'm going to explain because one takes the focus off of you. The other puts the focus on other people. And there's a significant difference in the two. When, you're, when you take the focus off of you, or rather put, or puts the focus back on you, when you take the focus off of you by saying no one cares about you, it should be a liberating thought, really. But one can hear that and go the negative route with it. No one cares about me, right? Or, or one can go, no one cares. If I tell you, you know, to not care about other people, there aren't many positive ways to take that. I can see a trick of the mind going, okay, don't care about other people, just care about this, but that still eliminates the, the human element. But if I tell you people don't care about you, what I'm preparing you for is the worst case scenario, which almost certainly isn't true. In preparing for that worst case scenario, you tend to benefit a little more. Because it's a lot better to make plans under the assumption that you won't have support than it is and be surprised 
then to make those plans under the assumption that you will have support. And it turns out I'm, I'm a little more right than uh, you gave me credit for. There's no loss if you assume people aren't thinking about you, people don't care about you. There's a lot of potential for some bad things to go if you go the other way and assume they do. But if I tell you don't care about other people, which is the angle you were taking with this, I tell you don't care about other people. I think there are fewer positive interpretations of that, fewer ways to go. So it sounds like you're talking about managing expectations around the spotlight effect. And if people don't know what the spotlight effect is, it's when you think everything is around you. Like if you were to leave a party early and no one cares, cares, but you're like, oh gosh, you know, if I don't say goodbye to everybody, then everybody's going to care. And the reality is it's not going to be as big a deal as you've made it out to be in your head. So, all right, I, I can buy that. I can buy that, this idea of managing expectations. My last question for you is this, Ed. Am I allowed to laugh, and am I allowed to purchase one of your coffee soul black mugs? <laughs> Absolutely, man. Look, one of the things... I, I don't know that I'm going to take a picture of me drinking out of it, but you know, maybe I'd have it just as a souvenir and said I got this from Ed Lattimore. People are so sensitive. You know, and here's the, one of the... One of, when I was talking about why we're all fucked, Right. Because I'm very careful with my coffee. So black jokes. So I don't share a lot of people's because they miss it. They see it and they they're overly mean. A lot of the ones that people will send me and I'm like, look at my coffee. So black jokes and tell me what you see. In fact, I made a page where I explained every joke. They're supposed to highlight some element of black culture or black history in a clever way. Coffee. So black only three fifths of its calories count. You like you need to know history to get that to understand that, and it's hilarious. Our coffee so black, it was shipped across the Middle Passage. You need to know history to get that. Coffee so black, drinking it makes you late to everything. That's a stereotype, okay? But it's not. I don't think it's mean. Certainly, I would. Certainly, I don't think it's mean. They're jokes. You poke fun at it, you know. A lot of people didn't like this one or didn't get it, but I explained it on my page. You know, coffee so black, Planned Parenthood wants to stop from being brewed. And that is, most of them aren't particularly lowbrow. You need to have some culture, some historical knowledge. Coffee so black barely fits in your mouth. They play, but they have to work. Like, I want to personify the coffee if I can. I'll tell you one that got me a suspension on Facebook. I said, coffee so black, you don't grind the beans, you whip them. And they were like, and somebody reported me. <laughs> but that's oh. the Get a mug, man. I would love the support. I put them out there because people people were asking, about, asking for them. Every now and then a sale comes through. Somebody buys the mug. Well, hey, if you're interested and you're brave enough to get yourself a coffee so black mug, Go to www.edlatimore.com. If you want to follow Ed on social media, he has cornered the market on Ed Lattimore. If anybody is born later and wants to use Ed Lattimore as their social media tag, they are going to have to buy it from Ed because Ed has cornered the market. You can go to pretty much anything on social media. Look for Ed Lattimore. Ed, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm glad I got you riled up here a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it was a good time, man. It was, it was fun. It was a fun conversation. Very, very unique. Hey, if you enjoyed this week's episode, be sure to look in the show notes for all of Ed's contact information. 
Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple listener, you can do that by clicking the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner. Also, please do me a favor and leave a five-star review with a few kind words. Or if you're a Spotify listener, click those five stars under the show art after you click the follow button. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this week's episode, you can find all of my contact information in the show notes as well. Feel free to email me your takeaways from this conversation at mindfulmidlifecrisis at gmail.com. You can also follow me and DM me on Instagram at mindful underscore midlife underscore crisis. I'm also on LinkedIn at Billy Lahr, that's L-A-H-R. Or you can send a message to the contact page at www.mindfulmidlifecrisis.com. While you're there, feel free to sign up for the newsletter so you can get access to the free meditations I send out every Sunday. Finally, I know Ed and I would greatly appreciate it if you would share this episode with the people in your life who may benefit from Ed's expertise and life experiences. Remember, the purpose of this show is to help you navigate the complexities and possibilities of life's second half, and I hope this conversation provides some insight that will help you reflect, learn, and grow so you can live a more purpose-filled life. So with that, for Ed, this is Billy. Thank you for listening to the Mindful Midlife Crisis. May you feel happy, healthy, and loved. Take care, friends.